out of Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. Chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Let's hear God's word together today. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Then skipping down to verse 12, it says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you any evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another even every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt by, and led by Moses? With whom was He provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news, for good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as He said, as I swore in my wrath, they should not enter my rest, although His works were finished from the foundation of the world. And then one more time, jumping down to verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the power your word has to transform our lives. Lord, we're amazed that you would continue to show us grace, to continue to speak to us as you have time and time again. Lord, if we uh, are honest, we have neglected your word. We have not honored you as our Lord, as the one who has spoken to us. And so, God, we pray that you would forgive us our sins, forgive us for the ways we have trespassed against you. And God, um, use your word now to stir us, uh, to see you, and to honor you with our lives. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Long before the uh, COVID-19 pandemic uh, that hit our world a couple years ago, I guess now, uh, the CDC identified another problem, another epidemic, so to speak, in our world. Uh, and this one doesn't come from uh, a virus or a bacteria. Uh, it largely comes from our own poor habits. Uh, this is a quote from 2014. Uh, the CDC said that insufficient sleep is a public health epidemic. Insufficient sleep. Uh, they found that about one out of every three adults sleeps an average of less than seven hours a night uh, and apparently that very high standard of seven hours a night is what we need. Who knew? Who knew? Uh, they say that it's really bad for us to continue in a regular pattern of sleeping less than seven hours of sleep, seven hours a night, 
that it can lead to or be a factor contributing all kinds of bad things like uh, high blood pressure and diabetes and obesity, uh, that it's really bad for our memory, that we, we don't remember things as well if we're sleep deprived, and uh, that we, uh, our, our emotional health really struggles when we're sleep deprived. Plus, it's very dangerous. Uh, some reports say up to about 20% of car crashes, uh, the person being uh, drowsy is identified as a factor. So uh, there's all kinds of reasons. So, some people have, have uh, medical disorders uh, that keep them from sleeping, but others of us <clears throat> have nobody to blame except for themselves uh, about their chronic sleep deprivation. Uh, so I'm imagining if, if their numbers are ever, one out of every three, I think I'm probably not the only one uh, who falls in this category. Anybody else struggle with sleep deprivation? Uh, anybody else, it's their own fault? Yeah, that's me. Um, so I have to confess to that, and I, I hope I'm not alone. But some of us, it's just, uh, you know, there's just something else to do. There's always something else to do. And in the morning, there's more things to do. And so you get up uh, again. Um, I, I imagine that some of you, uh, like me, uh, can blame the kids, at least sometimes. You know, I think I've got good reasons. My, uh, our kids, uh, for the first year to 18 months of their lives, are been, have been terrible sleepers. So over the last seven years of my life, that's been a big percentage uh, of my life that they have not slept well. But I can't fully blame them. Before them, before, before kids, I was in seminary, and you know, there was always more, more work to be done, so I could blame my seminary professors. And before that, there's always something I could blame. Frequently, you know, if, if everything's going well, and, and Amber's in bed, she'll, she'll say things like, Philip, you hate sleep, don't you? Because I'm just so bad about finding one more thing to do and just am so bad about actually getting to bed. And so I can't blame anybody else except for myself that I contribute to my own sleep deprivation. There is a, uh, uh, another problem that is even more important, I think, than the chronic problem uh, across our country and maybe elsewhere uh, of not having sleep. But it is a, a problem similar, may sound similar at least, a problem of rest, a problem of rest. Some of us are really bad at getting sleep. Others of us, and maybe the same people, are really bad at finding rest, finding rest. And you probably know, even without, I, you know, without even elaborating on that, the difference that I'm talking about. You could be as well rested, so to speak. You could have slept 10 hours last night, and yet in your heart and in your soul not be at a place of rest. And that could be a continual problem. I, I think that our world, even more than struggling to find sleep, struggles to find rest, struggles to find peace. Uh, you could have eight hours of sleep and yet not have that true abiding rest that can only come from God. We're preaching through Hebrews this fall, and we come to a section uh, in Hebrews 3 and 4 that centers kind of, uh, around this theme about how Christ gives us rest. And he's not talking, of course, uh, about a regular pattern of, of healthy sleep, but about something far more profound. It's something that can only come from Christ, and that's been the theme we'll continue to see all the way through, that Jesus is better than everything else uh, imaginable. And so he is the source that our, our souls desperately need. We need to turn to him. He's the only place that we can find rest. So before we even look at the, the passage, I, I want to ask you if you can just be honest about the place of your own heart and soul today. Are you rested? Are you rested? Is your soul, is your heart before the Lord and, and, and what He's called you to do, are you at a place of peace? Are you at a place of rest? Do you have joy? Is your heart satisfied? Is your heart full? Or is it 
restless? Are, are you full of anxiety and stress, not just about the tasks, but about the, the tasks you got to do this week or whatever, but just before the Lord, are you at a place of rest or you feel restless? My sense is that many of us have, we, we understand what that means. We understand what it means to have a place, sense of rest and peace and what it doesn't, oh, and what, what happens when we don't have that. And so it's good for us to turn to the Word to find that rest. Where we're diving into Hebrews 3 this morning, uh, it starts with a, where, where I'm diving in, starting in verse 7, he's quoting from uh, the Old Testament, quoting from Psalm 95. In Hebrews, if you've, if you've started looking into this book at all, you'll notice it consistently quotes from the Old Testament. And what he's doing, he's making this incredible case about how awesome Christ is based not just on their experience uh, of Christ, which has been powerful, but of what God has been planning all along and has shown them in his word. And so when he points back uh, to Psalm 95, he's gathering this, this warning that helps us see what Christ has to offer. So in your notes this morning, I've got three, three B's. If, you, if you've got a, a, an outline to fill out there, and your, your, first out, your first B is beware. Beware. Warning. Heads up. Caution. Proceed carefully. Beware. There is a dangerous path ahead that you'll be tempted to go down if you're not careful. So, warning. Beware. We said last week that Hebrews is, has a, a series of warnings in it. And so this is the second one. And so starting in Hebrews 3, verse 7, quoting Psalm 95, it says this, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. So this is quoting Psalm 95, but it's referencing the wilderness generation. The people of Israel that God had brought miraculously out of Egypt with all the plagues and crossed the Red Sea with Moses and come out to Mount Sinai to worship Him. So this is the generation that he's talking about. A generation, if anybody should have been able to look to God and say how great He is and followed Him passionately and wholeheartedly, surely this generation, the generation that saw the plagues and saw the Red Sea parted and saw the Red Sea demolish the Egyptian army after the Israelites walked around, walked across it on dry land. Surely this generation would follow God wholeheartedly for their whole lives. And yet they didn't. They did not. They wandered from Him. They rebelled against Him. And you look back and you say, well, you know, I mean, they, they didn't know everything. Hebrews 4.2, listen to this. It says, for good news came to us just as to them. So many people think, oh, the gospel is only in the New Testament. No, the good news, the gospel, is the gospel of God, what He has done for us and His grace to save sinners. And though that was revealed fully in the New Testament, it was available still in God's nature in the Old Testament. Uh, Exodus 32, four, uh, when, he, when he's talking to Moses in the mountain, he said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's that's the gospel. And these people, the entire generation of the Israelites, they missed it. They missed it. They rebelled against God while they were in the wilderness. They heard the good news. They heard how great God is. They saw His power, and yet they rebelled against God. So Hebrews 3 and 4 is waving that flag to us, saying, Warning! Warning! Here was a generation who had everything they needed to follow God, and yet they rebelled against Him. They heard it, 
and yet they did not believe. That warning is so important for us to hear, especially as you're sitting in church today. It is easy, unfortunately, in our world today to be a part of a generation who has every reason to believe in God, who has been provided for, who has God's Word, who has the testimony of what He's done on the cross through His Son, who has the power and the witness of an empty tomb, who has dozens of people around us who can teach us the ggospel and explain the good news to us. We have a a, a wealth of opportunities to know Him. And yet, over and over again, we unfortunately see that people hear the gospel and yet don't believe. They rebel against the Lord. That's the warning for us today. Are you just around the gospel? Do you just hear the gospel? Or do you respond to the gospel in faith? The promise was made to the generation of God's people as they came out of Egypt, and yet they didn't follow it. And so they were rejected. The way that promise was described and was a very, a very tangible way that they could experience is that he promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. A promised land is what they began to call it, this promised land. And this promised land was a, a foretaste of the rest that God had, was, was making available and makes available to us today. As the people came up out of Egypt for 400 years, they had not had a land their own. They had not had a way to care for themselves and provide for themselves. And so God was promising them, hey, follow me through the wilderness and I will bring you to this land and meet all of your needs. It was this this, uh, idyllic land that was going to be just so perfect for them. A place of rest, a place of dwelling with God. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. It was a place of rest. And yet they failed, they missed out on it because of their lack of faith. Listen to the way this generation is described here in in Hebrews and and what it would look like if we follow in their steps. In chapter 3, verses 8 and 15, it says they have hard hearts. In verse 12, it says they have evil and unbelieving hearts. Verse 13 warns about being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 16, they heard and yet rebelled. Verse 17, they sinned and describes how their bodies fall in the desert. Verse 18, they were disobedient. So I hope you're getting a sense of what he's recommending to us. Don't do that. Don't be like that generation. God had told them that this generation, he was going to bring them out of Egypt. And he said in verse, uh, verse 19, because of their unbelief, says, so, that, uh, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. A whole generation missed out. God, after their rebellion, said everybody from that, at that point, it was 20 years and older, would die in the wilderness. An entire generation died in the desert instead of getting to enter the promised land, except for two faithful people, Caleb and Joshua. So beware of this. Beware of this danger that you can be around the gospel. You can experience the power of the gospel. You can see God work mighty ways. And yet if you never believe it for yourself, if you never truly trust in Jesus, you can miss out on it completely. Verse 13 gives a powerful warning for not just you, but also for your neighbor. Verse 13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's a call here for you to be aware of your own heart. Are you at a place of rest and trust in God? And for you and I to be looking out for one another. Many times it takes somebody else to see our own sin. Like 
Matthew, when Jesus tells, talks about taking the, the log out of your own eye and the, and the, the speck out of the others, we've got to be able to see each other's sin. We've got to be able to see what's going on in our hearts. And it can be possible for your loved ones, for your spouse, for your kids, for people around you in church to, to be around the gospel and yet never trust in Jesus. And we're called to exhort one another, to help one another, to encourage one another to trust in Him. Don't leave your neighbor. If you think he's lost, if you think she's not putting their faith in Christ, exhort them, help them, so that they can follow Christ. Exhort one another as long as it's called today. And then in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, we hear this. It says, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So this warning is, is all the way through. I mean, verse after verse, he's, he's making sure you don't miss it. But then he uses a really strong word there. He says, let us fear. And if you're holding a different translation uh, in front of you, it may have a different word. Uh, but the, I appreciate it. It's just ESV. Even though you could be misled here, just stick with what it says. It's just a simple word for fear. And so he says, there's a consequence. And we should, there's a certain thing we should fear. That we should fear. Now, is he saying that if you're a Christian, you should live your whole life fearing that you're going to lose your salvation? Should you live your whole life miserable and anxious on the edge of your seat that at any moment your salvation could just disappear? Is, it, is that what he's saying? Well, many times I think things, questions like that, people kind of rush past it. Of course not, you know. And he's not. He's not, let's be clear. But we got to say, all right, what is he saying? What is he saying that we're supposed to be afraid of? Well, one way to do that is to use that word fear and say, how else is this used? Well, just last week, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, talks about Jesus' power that he destroyed the devil and he says he's able to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So in Jesus, he has made us fearless about death, right? We don't have to fear death anymore. For anybody who has put their faith in Christ, the, the grave, the devil, death has no power over us. So we are fearless in, in the midst of the thing that should, that, that is the scariest thing. <laughs> death. And so in Christ, all the other uh, fears of this world have no power. We are fearless people. So when it comes to following Christ and, and risking uh, our lives for the sake of the gospel and following Him, we, we are fearless. We can face uh, the, the potential embarrassment of sharing the gospel with somebody and, and being afraid of, oh, what are they going to think of me? We, we can face the fear of moving to another country and, and sharing the gospel as we go out not just part-time, but full-time. We can face the fears that this world says are, are, are worth fearing, and we can say, no, in Christ I am fearless before those things. So when he's talking about fear, he's not talking about any of those things. The thing that we fear is unbelief. That's what he's telling you to be aware of. Fear not trusting in God. Fear living your life on your own power and not in faith. That's what we're called to fear. Fear hard hearts. Fear rebellion against God, fear disobedience, fear not trusting in the Lord. So that fear leads us to the second B. So beware and believe. Believe. Hebrews 3 and 4 had that strong warning and this strong invitation. Beware and believe. The wilderness generation uh, from the book of Exodus, they, that's what they missed out on. They missed out on belief. Their hard hearts made them unable to believe in Christ. So hear that warning and believe. So the way the Bible talks about faith uh, is, is this 
incredible and beautiful uh, kind of multifaceted thing. So one way that faith is talked about in the Bible is a, a one-time conversion to Christ. And there is an, an assurance that comes with that. So we celebrated with baptism uh, just last week. Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the way faith is talked about. There's an assurance. And once you have that genuine faith, we no longer fear uh, being left by him. God's holding us firm in his hand and he has us. So we have that. But there's also a daily practice of faith that we are reminded of the promises of God. So this summer we looked at uh, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, right? And this, in verse 6 it says, in all your ways acknowledge him. So that's a daily trusting, daily believing in him. We daily need the practice of being reminded of who God is and how great he is and the promise he has given us. Jesus at one point encounters a man uh, that he calls to faith and the man uh, memorably, he says, I believe and help my unbelief. I believe and help my unbelief. And I think that if we're honest as Christians, that's, that's where we are. If you've put your faith in Christ, I believe. I believe in Christ. And yet we daily need his help to overcome the unbelief of not trusting his promises. And if you, if you are afraid to go and do something God has called you to do, if you're afraid to step out and to, to, make, uh, to make changes in your life, if you're afraid to follow and to seek first the kingdom of God, you, you need to hear, be strong and courageous. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You need to hear God's promises. You need to hear the goodness of God. And that takes faith to trust that God really is who he says he is and his word really is as strong as it, as it is and his spirit really dwells inside of you. You need to be reminded of the good news of the gospel. You need to believe that even after putting your faith in Christ for the first time and trusting in him. So that belief is, an, is a one-time deal. You got it. You, you know Jesus. And it's a daily reminder, a daily practice of trusting his promises that he is who he says he is and he keeps his word. That's what he's calling us to, to that kind of constant faith in him. Hebrews 3 opens with that invitation to help us with that faith. So jumping now back up to the very beginning of this chapter, it says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. I love that. Consider Jesus. Uh, and that song, I didn't know they were going to sing that song, but let me tell you about my Jesus. I mean, it's like, consider him. Can you can you? Think about him. Put your minds on him. I think the NIV says, uh, fix your thoughts. Fix your attention. Man, if your faith is floundering, if you're going through life restless and anxious and unsure about things, what are you going to look to for, for comfort? Are you going to look to the things of this world? Are you going to look to your bank account? Are you going to look to, to anything of this world? Or are you going to fix your eyes, fix your thoughts, fix your mind on Christ? That's what Hebrews is doing over all the way through the book of the Bible, the book, this book uh, in the New Testament, is it's getting us to fix our mind, our thoughts, our eyes on Christ. And just, just looking at these two ways he's described here, man, this is, this is powerful. The two descriptions he gives is that he is an apostle and a high priest. Now, if you're, if you're a Bible person, or you've just been around the Bible a little bit, that word apostle, most of the time when we read it, refers to the people who followed Jesus, the disciples. So why is Jesus called an apostle? Weren't the disciples the apostles? How does that, how does that work? Well, the apostle, ap apostle, the word literally just means one who is sent, a sent one. 
And so when Jesus is described as an apostle, he's, it reminds us of who he is. He is the one sent from the Father to us. He is the original apostle. He sends, John 20, 21 says, As the Father sent me, so I send you. So his, his disciples and all of us, we are sent because Jesus was sent from the Father to us. So as an apostle, Jesus is God's way of coming to us. He represents God to us. But then the other description is the high priest. And we'll, we mentioned this last week and we dive further into it in Hebrews 5 next week. But the, uh, uh, the high priest was a man in the Old Testament who went before God to represent God to man in making a sacrifice once a year on the Day of Atonement. So the high priest represents people to the Father. The apostle represents God to people. Jesus is the perfect mediator. He's the go-between. He's how we have access to God, and He's how we get to know Him for who He is. He is the one that unites us to Him. He, he represents God to man and man to God. That's who we're called to believe in. Nobody else was qualified to do that job. The high priest died. We'll, we'll, I won't go into the, the high priest wasn't enough in his own. We needed somebody who was eternal. We needed one who was going to stay there forever. And we needed a man who was fully God and fully man. That's who Christ is. God crossed the divide for us. Our, our sin created a, a chasm that was far too wide for anybody else to stand over and cover. Jesus alone is the one who has the power, the arms long enough to cross that chasm, to bring us to God and allow us back into his presence by his grace. God alone can cross it. And he did it when he be, who, Jesus, who being fully God, be, took on flesh, became man so that he could pay for our sins. That's who we're called to believe in. We've got to beware of unbelief and daily come back to trust, fix our eyes on, commit our, our thoughts to, consider this Jesus. That's what Jesus is worth fixing our eyes on, fixing our thoughts on. He saved us. That first generation of, of Christians, they, they wouldn't have had the, the New Testament that we have because they were you know, living it and it was being written as they lived it. And so all they had were the Old Testament scriptures. And so Hebrews, as it's exhorting this first generation, uh, is, is, is reminding them of God's faithfulness in the Old Testament, but also using it uh, to, to point them forward. So Hebrews, the people who, who received this, uh, would have exalted, rightly, exalted Moses as being one of the great heroes of the faith. One of these great men, and we'll see Hebrews 11 as he lifts up Moses and, and other places. Is this, Moses was this uh, faithful steward of God's household. He was a leader of God's people. He received the law of God and led God's people as they built the tabernacle to worship God uh, as his people. He was a great man of faith. But as Hebrews is, is inviting us to consider Jesus, he reminds us of how great Moses is so that you can believe and trust in Jesus who was even greater. Whereas Jesus isn't, he's not just the, the steward of the house, he is the son of the house. Like going to a, an enormous castle, it's great to meet the very kind butler who welcomes you uh, into, the, into the castle. But it's even greater to meet the prince, the son of the king. That's how much greater Jesus is. Jesus isn't just the one, uh, he, like Moses, he is the leader of God's people, but he didn't just receive the law, he is the word made flesh. And more than just building the tabernacle, Jesus is the one through whom all things were created. We've already seen in the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews makes that connection between Moses and Jesus so we can see and we can believe in Christ 
as the one who is counted of worthy of more glory even than Moses. And we can learn from the mistakes of those who followed Moses. Moses was, got, was charged with the promise or with the, the call to, to bring these people into the promised land. And yet they failed out of disobedience. So Hebrews is saying, don't be like the group that followed Moses. Be one who follows Jesus, who is far greater. We are offered a, a form of rest that's far greater than what they were offered there. What they were offered was just the beginning uh, uh, of what rest is possible in Christ. Hebrews 4.9 says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So, so what is that rest? What is, he, what is he talking about? If we're aware of unbelief and we turn to Christ and we believe in Him, what is that rest that we find in Him? We, we know it's more than just propping your feet up or getting eight hours of sleep. It's more than just having a, a week at the beach or at the lake where you just take, take a load off. It's more than your afternoon nap, as holy and sacred as that nap is on Sundays. It is more than that. It's something that no, no money, uh, uh, you can't buy this like you can buy a vacation. It's not material. It's deeper. It's a, it's a peace and it's a joy that can only come from God. Maybe you've, you've gotten glimpses of this. I uh, was talking to the guys this week, talking about just, just the sense of accomplishment sometimes or of, of a beautiful sunset where you just, just have this sense of peace that comes sometimes. We, we get a glimpse of that, I think, in the world sometimes. But, but there's something deeper that comes with, with this that, that only Christ can give us. And that's because it, it's in the, it comes from the very nature of God Himself. Hebrews 4, 4 quotes Genesis 2 about how God Himself rested on the Sabbath day. How, how did God rest? Well, he, he worked for six days. And he said it was good. It was very good. And then He rested knowing it was, it was complete. It was like it was meant to be. He, he made something and then He rested at peace knowing this is how it was supposed to be and it was under His control. There's a, another way of, that rest shows up in the Old Testament. It's kind of these five different... Um, ways we see rest in the Bible. The, the second one is the, the fourth of the Tenth Commandment, the Ten Commandments. The fourth one is about honoring the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath day holy. The third one is this promised land that they were called to enter into this rest, and that was really just a shadow of what's to come. The fourth one, where we are, is beyond that promised land. Hebrews 4.8 says that Joshua did get them into the promised land, but if all that, that's all there was to it, then it would be done. But it says in verse 8, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So that day later on is today, that we can enter into rest. And it comes by faith, by belief. And the fifth one, the final one, will be when we enter into the new heavens and the new earth. So what does it look like right now to live in that rest? It, it, it means living with a, without the uncertainty of the future. And if you don't know your eternal destination, if your life is in turmoil to the point where you, you're not sure of your faith and you're not sure uh, of what's to come, you're not sure about death. There is a, a, an anxiety, a stress, a concern with that, that that's far from peaceful. You, you can't have peace if that's where you are. We have to, if we, if we are in Christ, that is the only way to have true and everlasting rest. There is a peace knowing our salvation is sure. And it comes with a joy of walking with Him daily. Verse 10 talks about whoever has entered God's rest, entered into God's rest. We are resting with God, celebrating what He's done. How, how is God resting? Is He just got His feet propped up? No, He's, he's caring for the world. 
And yet he's resting because he knows it's all under his control. Listen, the whole world can be falling apart in, in, in our eyes. Our whole world can be falling apart. And yet we can still have rest when we have faith that God really still is on the throne. It may not be easy. It may be a, a, an anxious form of rest. You may not be able to, 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 to fully sleep well at night all the time. But deep in our souls, we can have rest if we trust that God really is on the throne. And He really is caring for the world. And He has all things under His control. That's what's available to us who believe in Christ. If we believe in Him, we can have rest. Verse 9 says, There remains a, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So the question about whether you have rest or not is if you're in the people of God. In the Old Testament, Israel was described as God's chosen people. And do you know that if you have faith in Christ, you are God's people. You are the people of God, the ones He delights in. You are His children. And if you are that, if that's who you are, then you have peace and you can have rest. On the seventh day, God rested, not because He stopped doing anything, but because he knew everything was under his control. He had it like he intended for it to be. Of course, God never sleeps or slumbers. Psalm 121 tells us. So he's not inactive. God, all through history, has been sending prophets. He sent angels. He sent miracles. He did all kinds of things. He sent his son. So it's not that God stopped doing anything, but he rested at peace knowing things were like he intended them to be. So when we put our faith in Christ, we enter into that rest doesn't mean we stop doing anything, but it means it has a greater purpose. Like you're from the outside, your life might not look much different sometimes from, from, from the people around you who don't know Jesus. If there are two teachers in two classrooms right next door to each other, one's a Christian, one's a not, from the outside, their work can look the same. If you're driving a truck and you drive past another truck and you're a Christian and they're not, your work looks like the same. But it has a, more, it has a, a different purpose. And God is at work in you in such a way that it's, it's got a different goal. You and I, if we have Christ in our hearts, we're not working to get joy and peace and satisfaction. We have those things in Christ. The jobs we do, the families we lead, the, the opportunities we have for the gospel, our life in this world isn't to get the deepest things that we, we want. Joy, peace, satisfaction. In Christ, we already have all those things. When we go about our work, when we go about our families from a place of rest, we're giving out of the overflow of what God's already given to our hearts. Our hearts are at rest. Our souls are at rest. And now we are on mission for God to share His kingdom and His light and His love with the world around us. And so that's what it looks like to, for us to be at rest and yet still be striving. So the very last uh, B for you in your notes is to be steadfast. Be steadfast. Hebrews 3, 6 says, But Christ is faithful over God's household as a son, and, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and hope. Or 3.14 again says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So you hear those, the way those are, are written? We have come. Past tense, we've already put our faith in Christ. It is finished, and yet we continue to hold firm. We continue steadfast through all the ups and downs and waves and storms of life, continuing to hold firm to our faith. Our, our perseverance in the faith, keeping on with God, even through all the ups and downs, that is the proof 
that we genuinely have faith. Uh, Sam Storms uh, is a, a pastor, I think he's in Tennessee. He said this way, it's not if you persevere, you come to, sh- uh, it's not if you persevere, you come to share in Christ. It's if you have believed, it will be shown by your perseverance. That is, the, the, your perseverance is the proof or the authenticity of your faith. When you persevere, you show that you have truly been converted. Our perseverance in the faith is what validates our conversion. There's unfortunately far too often in our world people who say, I prayed a prayer and I'm fine and I just go live my life like I want to. Praying a prayer is not, is not a license to run from the Lord. People who genuinely put their faith in Christ will persevere. They will persevere. And so we as Christians don't ever want to give people the false idea that you just pray a prayer and then go run your life how you want to. No, if you genuinely put your faith in Christ, you stay with Christ because there's nothing better than Christ. A buddy of mine uh, in Massachusetts, so it was, uh, he's a pastor there, and uh, I used to work for him when I was in seminary, and uh, we get each other's weekly emails. He's preaching the same passage today, and so uh, we messaged back and forth, and he pointed this out to me that I want to end with uh, about how great Christ is. You know, in the, in the very beginning in Genesis, Adam was put into the garden, and he was supposed to work it, right? And he failed. He failed. And the whole world has been reeling ever since. But when Jesus came, he went into a garden one night with a job to do. And by the sweat of his brow, by the the, the blood that came out, and by the work he accomplished the next day on the cross, he did what we had failed to do, what Adam had failed to do. He accomplished the job that we couldn't do. And when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. The work is done. And then you know what he did? He went and rested on the Sabbath day. For anybody who believes in him, that rest is available. It's not a rest that's just about eight hours of sleep and propping your feet up at the beach. It's about a rest that knowing that God has provided for all your deepest needs, your joy, your satisfaction, your hope, your peace is in Christ. And then he gives you the opportunity to persevere with him and share him with the world around you. Jesus gives us this incredible invitation. He says, come to me, all you who, are la- who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray.